Hello, and welcome to another episode of Stories from Sydney, History of the Harbour City. My name is Alistair. And I'm Jed. And each episode, one of us presents a story to the other. Last week, I was the one telling the story, Jed. Do you happen to recall what it was about? Mate, I knew what it was about two weeks before you did. It was about the uh, hospital on Macquarie Street and the rum... uh, We can't say the the M word, so we'll say the rum deal that financed it. Indeed. And uh, these last two episodes of the season have been about topics that are possibly a little bit more well-known in Sydney history. And so I also was able to guess that the episode we're going to hear today is about the, I think it's called the Great North Road, but the the road, the convict-built road leading north out of Sydney. And I'm really excited to learn more about it because I don't know a great deal other than that it possibly possibly goes through Wiseman's Ferry and that it was built by convicts. And I think it might go towards Newcastle. Okay. You're covering a few bases there. I was going to say that you do you did seem very confident last week that you knew what it was about and that we'd be talking about the Great North Road. But you didn't confirm it. Well, I'm pleased to say that you've doubled down uh, and you're right, but I was extremely tempted to change the direction at the last second and make the episode about some other much more obscure piece of transport infrastructure. And then in this exact moment, I would be relishing in your disappointment. The ultimate gotcha. Okay, so we've heard what you know about it, which is very little. Um... Which is good, because I've got lots to share with you. Uh, But before I begin, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land on which we recorded this episode. In my case, that's the Wiradjuri people. And in my case this uh, week, it's the Luisenu Indians of uh, northern San Diego. And the land which the Great Northern Road traversed, being the Yora, Darug, Kuringai, Darkanyung and Awabakal people. Sovereignty was never ceded. I'd also like to say that while with this story I focus on the trials and tribulations of the European history of the Great Northern Road, the reality of what these sorts of expansionist endeavours meant for the local people is horrific. The Darkanyung people, like so many Indigenous groups in Australia and the world, were victims of an aggressive and largely successful genocide that saw so many elements of their culture and language die out that they are now often referred to in the past tense. Okay, Alistair, picture this. The year is 1822. And you are a colonising free person, perhaps a freed convict. Now you've secured a land grant of 100 acres on the Hunter River. You've been sold a cow by the colonial government at a nominal price to kickstart your herd. And you've been given a slave convict to assist with your dirty work. Uh You can thank the generous policy of Governor Brisbane on both counts. Uh Uh-huh. Sounds good. Um, Things are looking up. Now you're aware that there's an overland route that's been recently discovered from Windsor to the Upper Hunter along what will in years to come be known as the Putty Road, but it's wild country, and so you choose to travel from Sydney Cove the only reasonable way. On a boat. Exactly. (laughs) Yeah, that's that's, that's what I would have done. Yep, that was my plan. (laughs) Excellent. Now, you take a... To do that, you take an ocean-going vessel from Port Jackson, and you make it as far up the Hunter River as Morpeth, recently established just the previous year in 1821. From there, you'll have to change to a boat with a shallower draft to finish the trip up the Hunter River to Maitland which is the staging point for transport in the Hunter Valley, and soon to be the second largest town in what we now know as Australia. Oh, wow. Hmm. Maitland. It's not even seven kilometres as the crow flies from Morpeth to Maitland, but it is a full 26 kilometres upstream. Oh, because it's a very winding river. It certainly was in 1821. Uh. But little do you know that in 200 short years, changes to the area wrought by the legacy of agricultural settlers like yourself will see the river reset its course to be only nine kilometres long between the two towns. 
Oh, wow. Was that kind of intentional, like largely intentional that they were re-diverting it so that it was a straighter line or was it also somewhat random? Totally random. It's because of flooding, um, erosion and land clearing, increasing the likelihood of like damaging floods and the inability of the banks to remain stabilized. Okay. And so the floodwater pushing a new, more direct channel. Fascinating. Hmm. So you arrive at your new home and you begin establishing yourself on the land. But despite the extreme productivity of the land that you found yourself on, it's still hard going. I only have one cow. I'm a little worried about that. Hopefully one of your neighbors has got a bull. Yeah, I'm really, you'll be in really trouble. banking on that. Otherwise, my one cow and me, we're not going to do very well. <laughs> now, all the supplies you have to rely on must come by ship from Sydney, adding greatly to their cost and also reducing their availability. To yeah. make matters worse, all of your product must be exported in the same way, making it very hard to compete with the primary producers in the Sydney Basin and the Hawkesbury Nepean. Right. You wonder, if only there was a better way. Yeah, I think I've been a bit ripped off with this land grant. How did I get such a crappy one that was so far away? Good ones were gone. Uh, all right. <laughs> better build a road, I'd say. Well, that's, that's what you thought. And so in 1826, you and your neighbours began to petition Government House for just that. As new settlers, you're not without clout. And so you're pleased to discover that a full year before you sent your petition, Assistant Surveyor Heenage Finch had already commenced locating a potential route and construction will begin shortly in 1828. Excellent. Under the watchful eye of the new governor, Ralph Darling. Uh, nice. My real, real estate is skyrocketing in value. <laughs> if only there was a way they could capture that value and spend it on more infrastructure projects. I take it that's some kind of policy reference that I don't understand. (laughs) Such a shame. (laughs) Such a shame. Um, As with many projects at the time, and you hopefully will recall this from our discussion of both the Cox's Road and the main Western Line, um, the goal was to build a road that didn't necessarily meet the needs of the colony, but instead one that could be said to be as good as any in England. Yeah, yeah, definitely a lot of com- comparisons to England going on all through the 19th century. The countryside looks like England, but this road's as good as England. England has a train, we don't, so on and so forth. What would England think of this piece of behaviour? Yeah. I'm sure England was thinking of Australia just as often. <laughs> I'm sure they were. I'm sure our inferiority complex was completely matched by their, you know, intrigue and interest in every every detail of what was going on. Now, the original route of the Northern Road, which you uh, know very little about, was determined by Heenage Finch and the Surveyor General at the time, who was Oxley, and it branched off the Windsor Road, roughly five miles north of Parramatta, um, and that's now in mm-hmm. a suburb called Borkham Hills. And it's... Okay. I don't know if you've been to this intersection, but it's a great example of Sydney street names continuing what would otherwise be a long-forgotten legacy. Yeah. It's so I I wanted to ask about this cuz actually this is one other thing that I thought I might know about. So I believe when you're going on on Parramatta Road, there's a a road that branches off to the right near and I think it's Abbotsford and I think that it's still called the Great North Road possibly and then it just hits the the um the harbor at, and I don't know what happens after that. It goes underwater to the town of Atlantis. <laughs> Yeah, so there's lots and lots of places along the Great North Road where the road has a name alluding to its history. To run through a couple, as you said, you're exactly right. The Great North Road in Abbotsford and Five Dock. We've got the Northern Road that runs from that intersection with Windsor Road in Borkham Hills all the way to Wiseman's Ferry. And there's a few others that we'll come to 
as we continue on with our story. Okay. But I think what's interesting about all these places is that in most of them, there's really nothing there to indicate that this used to be an important route out of Sydney, except for the name. Yeah. Yeah, definitely at Abbotsford, it just looks like any old city road branching off Parramatta Road. You wouldn't know that it was an old convict thoroughfare. Yeah. So, Oxley uh, set the original route for the road, and then he died in 1827, Mm. and Mitchell took over the reins. So, we've got some very important surveyors in this story. Mitchell was well known for liking to do things his own way, and he had a penchant for road straightening, which wasn't obviously too bad of a thing. And that's why we still use his most excellent alignment through Hartley today. I see. I, th- I think that this is for the real uh, real buffs of geography and alignment. No, it's for general audience. <laughs> this is wi- widely accessible to all fans of Sydney's history, <laughs> <laughs> but mostly surveyors. Mostly surveyors. So Mitchell thought that the deviation, uh, that the, tr- the journey through Parramatta was a bit too much. And so he blazed a new trail so to speak. You're blazing, hey? I like it. <laughs> and that's the one you alluded to earlier that branches off the Parramatta Road at uh, Five Dog. Okay. And then once it got to Abbotsford, it did not, in fact, just end, but uh, a punt was there to take you across the river to ride. Yeah. And I think that on the other side of the river, is there still a historical building that had something to do with that punt? Well, the road on the other side is called Punt Road, so could well be. Oh, okay. Yeah. So we'll have to look into that maybe. And then from there, the road continued through Ride in a northwesterly direction. And we have a, another place that retains its original name, which is New Line Road, which runs sort of through Cherry Brook. Okay. And that's because this was the, the new alignment of this north road from this second surveyor. Exactly. Cool. Exactly. Up until about this point, the road was heading out through what was a mixture of, you know, established farmland or at least well-explored bushland on the outskirts of the colony. But the real excitement, that lay beyond the Hawkesbury River. Now, Alistair, do you know where the Northern Road crosses the Hawkesbury? Uh, no, but I wanted to say something about Wiseman's Ferry, and so I'm going to say something about Wiseman's Ferry. Is that something along the lines? I mean, you could have just said, I think it crosses the Hawkesbury at Wiseman's Ferry, and you would be right. Well, that would be attributing me quite a lot of knowledge of which river Wiseman's Ferry is on and all those kind of oh, things. I, I, just, I don't know the first thing about it. I just assumed it was the Hawkesbury. It's been a long time since I've been to Wiseman's Ferry. There's not that many rivers as well, I guess. You need to, you need to get a map. <laughs> yeah. Okay, what would you like to say about Wiseman's Ferry? I would like to say that I once played golf there and hit the ball into the water every single time on the first hole and lost all the balls because I can't play golf. And otherwise, I have not that much to associate with Wiseman's Ferry. Did you jump in and get him out? No, I think I think the guy who gave us the balls said, right, you'll need all of these and gave us this massive tub. And we said, no, we won't. We just need one. And then he was like, trust me, you need them. And then we knocked them all into the pond. And he was like, yeah, I knew that would happen. And then we left. Seems like an ex- extremely environmentally destructive business model and wasteful. No, he said, I think he then, he then kind of would eventually sieve them all out, I think. I think there was a plan to get them eventually, but he just <laughs> let unknowing punters whack them in there. Fair enough. Well, that's... That's an interesting anecdote, but very... (laughs) It's not really historically relevant anecdote. No, we won't be touching on the golfing history of the Hawkesbury Valley. (laughs) I I don't know much about the history of uh, Wiseman's Ferry. Presumably there was a ferry that took you across the river as part of the Great North Road. Very good. And why might it be called Wiseman's Ferry? Uh, Because the person who helped you on this ferry was a very wise man. Well, he he may well have been. But his name was certainly Solomon Wiseman, which sounds Uh, outrageously wise. Very wise. And we do have a few stories about him that might shed some further light on whether or not he was 
wise, but he was at the very least extremely lucky. I imagine it was quite a lucrative trade. <laughs> certainly was. And so Wiseman's an example of a kind of what I would describe as a classic Macquarie era uh, reformed convict turned successful capitalist. Okay. Yeah. But this uh, Macquarie, this is after the Macquarie era that the Great North Road was built, right? It is. Yep. It is. But we're going back into the history of, of, of our good friend Solomon Wiseman. Exactly. Uh, so I think he's a quite interesting person. And in order to have you off my back about berating people with facts about alignment and road construction. <laughs> oh, yeah. I'm going to turn to a personal interest story. Personal interest story is what I'm all about. Let's hear it. <laughs> so he was convicted in 1805 for stealing timber from barges on the Thames where he worked as a boatman. And he was transported to New South Wales, where he was accompanied by his free wife, Jane, and their young family. Hmm. Now, like most convicts, upon arrival in New South Wales, he was assigned to a free settler. And being the wise man that it seems like he may have been, he managed to get himself assigned to his wife, Jane. Oh, that's just brilliant. (laughs) (laughs) I was going to ask, did she get a land grant and convicts? Because I think that was what happened if you're partner accompanied you and they were a free person then they would actually get land grants and really quite good stuff and so then once you were released you could just go and join them and they'd already set themselves up pretty well yeah exactly but i think that was the story of the collets wasn't it that you were telling us about in the episode about the blue mountains yeah yep, yeah it was fascinating if you came out single you definitely had a harder time of it yeah there weren't many women i think they had a they had a shortage of women well and that's why they would have had a policy like this like i mean anyone who was assigning convicts could have seen what wiseman was doing but um obviously <laughs> yeah. it was sort of in line with the interests of the colony to some extent yeah and but it was certainly great great for solomon and jane because he was able to start himself up as a business owner while he was still technically a ward of the state right in 1821 now we're back out of the macquarie era you can relax uh, Solomon oh, was long since freed and he and Jane had settled at what is what was known at the time as Lower Portland Head on the Hawkesbury River and they opened a small inn there called the Sign of the Packet. Ooh, does it still exist? Now, I have no idea what that name means, but <laughs> since you did so well with the Royal Garter, I'm hoping you do. The Sign of the Packet? Oh, no, I wish I knew more, but no. Probably some obscure royal inn group. I think a packet might be another term for a small boat. So then I guess it could be like, there's a sign there, the boat. It's almost like you could have looked this up before the episode was recorded. I honestly thought you'd know it. You knew the Royal Garter. I'm trying to give you room to room to have your input. Yeah, sorry. I've let you down on this one. I don't know what the sign of the packet is. Okay. Well, sorry, listeners. So it was a sad year for the Wisemans um, as Jane died in 1821 uh, but Solomon shortly remarried, and in 1826, he built his new wife, Sophia Warner, a lovely sandstone manor called Cobham House. And that building mm. is still in Wiseman's Ferry, and it's, nice. in fact, the pub. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. Oh, now that I know these things, i got to go back to Wiseman's Ferry. Yeah, well, I actually was booked in to stay at the Wiseman's Ferry pub in April, but unfortunately, COVID saw the wedding that was my impetus to visit pushed back to December, hopefully. So I haven't been to any of these places either, which is a damn shame. Might have to join you for that wedding just to stay at the <laughs> yeah. pub. Uh, so the next year in 1827, Wiseman received a lease to run his ferry service. And it is now the oldest continuously operating ferry in Australia, coming up for 200 years. Oh, wow. That's really impressive. So it's it's still going, I guess. There's And there's not a bridge? They didn't just build a bridge? No bridge. We'll get to that. Okay. <laughs> the, the road didn't uh, crack up to... a Spoiler, the road didn't quite crack up to uh, what it was hoped. Yeah, yeah, I guess you can guess that by the fact that, I mean, very few people drive that way, right? 
It's not Wiseman's bridge. <laughs> no. So Wiseman's contract with the colony stipulated that he could charge private travellers, but he had to let those on government, government business travel on his ferry for free. Okay. Which we have several reports saying that he did grudgingly and that yeah. his famous hospitality was not extended <laughs> to those that enjoyed it complimentarily. I like it. Give, throw them a bit of shade. <laughs> Uh, he also enjoyed an extremely lucrative contract providing provisions to the 600-odd convicts working on the road at any given time. Yeah. And then in 1832, as the road neared completion, the government nationalised his ferry operation for the princely sum of £267. Okay, so I, I believe at the time that would have been quite a lot of money. Absolutely, definitely, yeah. Yeah. I tried to do a quick conversion, but when you're trying to extrapolate a currency out that far, it's like, do you want in income or in wealth? And I'm like... Yeah. <laughs> I don't, don't know. Just know. give me a figure. <laughs> but I'd say it's in the vicinity of maybe $200,000 or probably more. I don't know. Right. Yeah. A very good amount of money. And it's still a state-run and entirely free ferry today. Okay. Good deal. Hmm. And I take it your car can get on this ferry. Of course. Because otherwise it wouldn't be very much use. It's a long walk north of Weissman's Ferry <laughs> to uh, anything. So we'll more or less leave Solomon behind us. But to add some period flavour and to paint a pretty picture of the Hawkesbury Valley at Wiseman's Ferry, as only a 19th century journal entry can... Oh, I quote. You've always got a good one, Jed. I will now ask for your forgiveness if I may indulge in quoting extensively from the writings of Reverend John Dunmore, who travelled the Northern Road in 1834. Go ahead. I wouldn't expect anything less. <clears throat> Settle in, it's a long one. The sun was just beginning to descend beyond the distant Blue Mountains when we were suddenly delighted with the view of the broad Hawkesbury River, winding along in a deep valley far beneath us. In the upper part of its course, the Hawkesbury flows through a champagne country on which its own successive inundations have gradually deposited many feet of the richest alluvial soil. But for 60 or 70 miles towards the ocean, the mountain ridges on either side of it approximate so nearly that the river has scarcely room to flow between them, and it merely leaves a small patch of alluvial land sometimes on the one side and sometimes on the other, as it sweeps more closely to the opposite bank. At the point, however, at which the road to Hunter's River crosses its channel, the valley of the Hawkesbury is of considerable width. The river, which at this part of its course is at least a quarter of a mile broad, suddenly changes its direction, and as it sweeps close to the precipices on the one side, it leaves a delta of alluvial land of several hundred acres on the other of the highest fertility. Nearly opposite this point of land, it also receives a tributary stream called the First Branch, on either bank of which there are numerous small settlers located for a distance of many miles, as the rich alluvial land which the settlers chiefly cultivate is more frequently met with on the branches than on the main river. The delta I have just mentioned belonged to Mr. Solomon Wiseman, a very prosperous settler whose large two-storey stone house has been most opportunely transformed into a comfortable inn the situation of which, overlooking the delta and the river, and facing the mountains on the opposite bank, is interesting and romantic in the highest degree. Indeed, so much pleased were His Excellency, the late Governor and Mrs Darling, with the scenery in this vicinity, that they rented a part of Mr Wiseman's house and lived in it for some time. Mm. Wow. The road, from the high level from which we had first seen the river, to the plain below, was formed across deep ravines and along the edge of frightful precipices, with prodigious labour and very great expense. It is an easy task, however, to descend a mountain by a good road. We were speedily at the foot of the precipices and safely lodged in the inn. 
Wow, that is an impressive bit. I'm really glad you did quote that whole thing because it's it really paints a picture of, of why that would have been an important area to go through with the road and also how well Solomon did for himself. Yeah, I thought that uh, for our listeners and apparently our host that has very little idea of the geography of the area might be helpful. <laughs> hey, we all learn with this podcast. But this isn't an episode about the five-star Wiseman's Ferry, so back to the road. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I take it the things things would get progressively worse as you go further north. Yeah. So now that we've made it safely across the Hawkesbury, this is where the Great Northern Road, as you probably know it, commences, and it's where the bulk of the most significant engineering um, marvels of the project can be found uh, mm-hmm. because it's where the planning for the route was most difficult. So as Dunmore nicely foreshadowed for us, the hills running down into the river here are quite steep, and so cutting a line of suitable grade was particularly difficult. Right. The first surveyor on the project was a man called Heenage Finch, and when Governor Darling came out to inspect his work, he was suitably unimpressed with the steepness of the section of the road leading up the hill north of the Hawkesbury. Darling was convinced it was too steep for any vehicle to ever surmount it. <laughs> that's damning, damning criticism. <laughs> I mean, for a road, that's a problem. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so he put a stop to work on that alignment completely, and moved Heenage Finch up to the sort of more remote northern reaches of the road and got Mitchell and the engineer Percy Simpson onto the job of building a slightly more manageable alignment, uh-huh. which is known today as Divine's Hill. Right, because you want it to be you don't want it to be too steep or you're never gonna be able to pull anything up it with a couple of oxen, right? Well, yeah, it's like the issues we had with the Cox's Road at Collett's Inn, right. where no one could export anything except live cattle from west of the mountains until a new road was built because it was too steep to carry anything up. You just had to drive them up there. <laughs> Unless the animal could do it themselves. Yeah. Right. Uh, not, not so good for economic development. No. So the Divines Hill alignment needed massive earthworks, and that's why it's the area where the bulk of the most interesting archaeological elements of the road are. So there's extensive cuttings, fill, culverts, and the odd survey mark if you keep your eyes peeled. Nice. And this is just on the other side of uh, Wiseman's Ferry, is that right? Yeah. Yeah. Cool. So basically, as Dunmore said, when you get to the other side of the river, the hills are running down almost directly into the river. There's no level alluvial section. Yeah. And so that's the kind of thing they were immediately confronted with when they were trying to get up onto the ridge. Once the road did get onto the ridge, it faced fewer engineering challenges and so there's now a lot fewer remnants of its construction. There's also another pocket of similar features of archaeological interest up near Laguna, which is sort of closer to the northern end of the road. Okay. But those would be the two spots then if you were interested in just going for a day trip to look at some archaeology of this old convict road that you would go to to check out the most interesting details. Yeah, yeah. The most popular spot is immediately north of the Hawkesbury at Wiseman's. Okay. Um, although the Laguna one you can drive to without ferries and bushwalking and stuff. So it sort of depends what kind of trip you're on, I suppose. Cool. I think you can walk the whole thing. Like There's a recognized walking route, and I think that my parents have actually done it. Oh, cool. In many stages where they had to kind of catch a train to a spot or somehow get out there and then they would walk for the whole day to another spot where they could get home from. And then over time, over a couple of years, I think they managed to walk the entirety of it. Are you sure you're not there? You're not thinking of the Great North Walk? Yeah, I am. So take that all back. (laughs) I was like, that sounds a lot like the Great North Walk. What's that? The Great North Walk is a walking trail that was sort of 
pieced together from existing walking trails and expanded a bit in, I think, the 80s. Uh-huh. And it it's a bushwalk from Sydney City to Newcastle City. Yeah, and that's what it is. And it crisscrosses the railway line a lot. So it's great because uh... you can do sections of it as day walks or one-nighters or whatever. Or you can do the whole thing in like a week or two. Cool. All right. Yeah, I write that a lot of the convict trail is also walkable. Okay. And there's a bunch of different ways you can sort of experience it today, which we'll get to towards the end of this roughly chronological episode. So construction methods. The road was built with convict labor, of course, and it seems like the construction process paints the kind of picture of the sort of convict labor that I was taught about in primary school. So picture the guys wearing those shirts with arrows painted on them wearing leg like in leg irons yeah leg irons for sure while they like pickaxe things yeah i always kind of assumed that was like vaguely hyperbolic because it must have been so bad for productivity (laughs) yeah i always wondered about that too if you've got everyone chained to each other or enormous balls of lead it doesn't seem like the easiest way to get them to pickaxe their way up a hill yeah, so I think it's it's in part because the road was built by teams of 60 convicts with one overseer. So obviously they were kind of constrained in how they could manage it. But also it was used as a punishment for the naughty convicts. Okay. Um, so they obviously had reason to think these people might, you know, try and escape or something. They'd be naughty, naughty boys. Yeah, probably try and escape because they're in leg irons all day. But then also you were brought out there and you had to be in the leg iron gang but then after like a year or two of something of good behavior, you got moved to a leg iron free gang. Okay. So there was like a reward system, which was you don't have to wear a leg iron. <laughs> Great reward. <laughs> and so because the road was constructed along that method of, of a large group of convicts and a single overseer, and that was sort of one team would be assigned to a sec- each section of the road, when the road was roughly finished, the quality of different sections varied substantially depending on who had been working on it. Right, and how good the overseer was. And the convicts. <laughs> Blame the overseer. <laughs> so after all this chit-chat, Alistair, you must be wondering, whatever happened to the road? Yeah, I, I guess that's a question that I've always had at the back of my mind because the, the, if you want to drive to Newcastle now, you go far closer to the, to the coast, obviously, on the M1, I want to say it's called. I should have just said on the M1. Well, M1 for recent re- residents of Sydney... For old timers like myself, it's the F3. Always was, always will be. <laughs> you have so much more like actual attachment to all of this stuff than I do. I'm so bad at knowing the name of anything. I don't know what it's called. It's just a road. Yeah, so there's these days there's the the main route is yeah, what you said is the M1, the Sydney Newcastle Freeway. Um and there's the old Pacific Highway which roughly parallels the F3. Um there's uh, the road through Pete's Ridge as well, and I think it goes up through Wollumbi. Yeah, that's a beautiful road. It is, and the northern section of that is the Great North Road. Right, so at what point did all of these roads that you've just mentioned that are much closer to the coast, when did they kind of take over as the primary land form of transport? I mean, the freeway was built in the 50s, and the Pacific Highway was also very much a 20th century construction, but... As I'll sort of explain in a second, there were other overland routes that were preferred even in the 1830s when the road was sort of in its heyday. And that leads us nicely to a specific date that became very important for for the future path of the road. It's the date May 14, 1831, when something significant happened in Sydney. What do you think it might have been? May 14, 1831? Hmm. 
Um, Something happened in Sydney that would have a profound influence on the success of the road. Oh god, that's that's a cool question. I I can't think of anything. It's it's obviously before the gold rush. It's um does the name Sophia Jane mean anything to you? No, it doesn't. It's uh, and they're still sorry, it's before the it's in the 1840s that they stopped having their convicts. So I 1830s, I don't know what happened in 1831. So my my clue wasn't any help. <laughs> Sophia Jane? No. I don't I've never heard of her. But I'm I'm raring to find out. <laughs> So that's the date that the first paddle steamer, Sophia Jane, arrived in Sydney. Oh, okay. Yeah, I, didn't, I wouldn't have known that. And she began hauling people and goods between Port Jackson and the Hunter River in record time, reliability, and at a much lower price than the sailing ships could achieve. Right, and that makes sense. Because so, I guess the sailing ships are really dependent on good wind direction and conditions uh, of the sea and things like that. Yeah, so people had to wait, uh, you know, a week or something for conditions to change before they could set off. The Sophia Jane's quite an interesting ship. Uh, there's actually a picture of it in the Tasmanian archives that you can find online because she wasn't just a steam, like a paddle steamer. She was a dual-powered ship, being both sail and steam. Oh, that's cool. And so the picture of it looks like, you know, like an Endeavour-looking 18th-century sailing ship, but with a big paddle steamer housing mounted to either side. Oh, my gosh. I, I really want to see this photo. That'd be a good photo for this episode. Well, maybe it's only a very, very passing mention. <laughs> Actually, it's got nothing to do with the road. <laughs> well, it, it'd be a terrible she, photo for this episode. She she brought about the demise of the road. So as you sort of alluded to, uh, the arduous journey through the interior was no longer necessary. And the road might have been able to compete for local journeys or become some sort of fruit for droving cattle or whatever. Right. But the line that had been chosen by Mitchell for its directness, uh, travelled along a steady ridge, which was great in the sense that it was very direct and it was pretty much level, but it also meant that water was often unavailable for stock and horses for very long stretches of the road. Okay, because you're up at the top of a ridge and the water's all at the bottom in the valleys. Yeah, and it also didn't go really near any existing settlements. Okay. Um, So it was a pretty long, lonely journey along the ridge for 100 kilometres or so. For those that did choose to travel by land, alternative routes such as Maruta Ridge Road, St Albans Road, or the Peets Ferry Road were preferred, being more direct or at the very least less foreboding. Right. So wonderful piece of surveying, not a particularly good piece of uh, public policy. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, exactly. In 1832, the next year, Ralph Darling was recalled to England and all impetus to finish the project ended with him. Oh, so they never even finished it? No, no, it didn't. It was, well, it was used while it was being constructed. Okay. So it was functional. For the sections that were done, that were already completed. No, the whole thing was used because people just would cut their own path. Right. But it wasn't engineered to completion. Okay. So it really, it's a failed project, more or less. So it's, it's abandoned. Well, yeah, it's a. It was the Great North Road, and it's a. It's a dirt track. <laughs> like, look at look at what the Great Western Highway looks like today. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That may. I. I guess because it. It could have been in my mind. It could have been something that was hugely important for twenty, thirty, forty years back then, and then for other reasons in modernity mm. was not so important. No, that's a fair point. Uh, and it's not the case. I mean, obviously, parts of it are locally relevant, like the Great North, uh, sorry, the Northern Road from Borkham Hills to Wiseman's is an important regional route. The New Line Road is a busy road. As I mentioned, the the Great North Road uh, between Wollumbi and I think uh, maybe like Payne's Crossing or somewhere up there is also still used today. So there are sections of it that are used. Right. But as a whole route to the Hunter, no. And, and it was never particularly relevant. 
it was just it, it was a dream. It was a big dream. It was a it was a pipe dream. <laughs> and we have a quote here to to capture this mood. It was uh, a quote from the journal of Baron Charles von Hugel, who was an Austrian aristocrat, and he travelled Australia in 1834. Oh, wow. And he gave his two cents, or or tuppence, as I suppose they would have called it back then. <laughs> Or whatever the equivalent is in Austria at that time. <laughs> to Deutschmark uh, on the road and its leading engineer, who was Surveyor General Thomas Mitchell. So uh, Baron Charles von Hugel said, This road was designed by Major Mitchell and executed by Mr. Simpson. But however flattering to his vanity this project may be, and however great a tribute to his skill and knowledge, it nevertheless reflects badly on his character. For certain sections of a few miles have been deliberately left unfinished, making all the improvements brought about by the great expenditure on Divine's Hill useless, for these other sections are almost impassable. They have been left like that purely to point up the difference between the former Rhodes administration and the present administration. Up to the present, every Surveyor General had concerned himself with new routes which he had never had time to complete, and which his successor has either abandoned entirely or done nothing to improve, simply initiating something else which would bear his own name. (laughs) Oh, wow. That paints a picture. Yeah, yep. yep. So a wonderful, wonderful climb on a on a hill, perfectly graded, but everything else is more or less abandoned and never particularly functional. Yeah, I mean, he built a great, uh, a great bushwalk by the sounds of it. <laughs> One of the finest. So if we fast forward to 2020, uh, what remains of the Great North Road? Well, as I've mentioned, a lot of bits and pieces of existing functional uh, road. But there's also as the peaceful section that you can bushwalk. Um, so however you prefer to travel, there's a good chance that you can enjoy the Great North Road. I will definitely be walking up both Finch's Line, which is partially built. Apparently gives the impression of they were halfway through building it and they just downed tools and walked off the job. That must have been when Darling rocked up. And Divine's Hill, when I'm in the area in December. Fingers crossed. That's the Wiseman's Ferry area. Those are both north of Wiseman's, yep. But Alistair, the main reason I have undertaken to investigate this topic and to share it with you now is because I would like to inf- to formally invite you on an epic multi-day mountain bike ride of the Convict Road in autumn next year. Oh my gosh, how exciting. <laughs> multi-day. I'm not sure how the, uh, the wife and baby will, will react to that, but I, I love the idea. That it sounds like it. a great mountain biking track. And make sure you bring water. I hear it's a thirsty trip. <laughs> Don't worry about me just going to ride an old <laughs> convict trail with no water. But I'll just bring it on my backpack. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and e- there's, a, there's even a, an annual mountain bike race up there called the Convict 100. Oh, my, my father-in-law will be delighted to hear about that. That's cool. That is really exciting. I'd love to do that. We can argue logistics later. Uh, for now, we'll say it's a firm yes. It's a firm yes. Okay, Alistair. Well, that just about wraps me up. And I hope my telling of the story of the Great North Road lived up to the hype. Yeah, yeah. I um, I, I really love that story. And in a funny way, exactly where my knowledge of it was kind of dropped off really quick. It, was, it, was, it seems like a big project. I know there's sections where you can see exactly where the, the stone was chipped away. And then my knowledge of it just really fades into nothing. It seems like in a way that somewhat uh, mirrors actually what happened with the road and that it was an elaborate project that faded out. Mm. Very good. A very good justification for the gaps in your knowledge. Yeah. Well, I thought that there might be this whole other 
extra stuff going through the 1800s through the 1900s that I, I didn't know about. But it seems like actually the, the action moved eastward in the most part. Yeah, it's like a, it's a 10 year story, really. Yeah, fascinating. Uh, I really, really enjoyed that. And I'm now excited for a trip to Wiseman's Ferry to check out that uh, archaeological site on the north side of the Hawkesbury and also hopefully a mountain bike ride. Definitely a mountain bike ride. And uh, thanks to the suggestion of this story goes to my long-term business associate, Nick. Oh, wow. And if anyone would like to learn more about the road than my extremely contracted and rambling story has covered, you can check out convicttrail.com.au, which is the website of the not-for-profit Convict Trail Project. Um, They're largely focused on uh, conservation and storytelling and education about what's there, which is pretty cool. It does have an abundance of easily accessible information on the road, but I feel like I should add that the history section of that website is at least as poorly structured as my story today. I thought your story was very well structured, Jed. You don't need to give yourself a hard time. High praise for the Convict Trail Project indeed. Yeah, I thought it was great. <laughs> so I feel like I've disappointed you a bit because you did specifically ask me for for books on the topic and I've been flat out and so I haven't had a chance to read anything oh, more substantial no, 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 not at than all. websites. No, no, that's perfect. I, I was just, I was wondering if you had like something that you were really excited about. This is all just banter, but yeah, um, absolutely. That I, I thought it was great. I really like the, um, I really like the personal story of Solomon Wiseman and then the, the impact that the technology of the steamboat had as well. Mm, it has all the, uh, all the elements, doesn't it? Yeah. You don't always need a book. Well, if you do want one, prominent Sydney historian Grace Carskins wrote uh, an article on the archaeological elements of the road in the 80s and a series of essays on the road in the 90s, uh, which are probably worth tracking down, but I couldn't readily locate copies of them, so I haven't read them. But I have gone to the library and borrowed a copy of her book, The Colony, which is about the early years of Sydney, obviously, and that will no doubt provide much fodder for future episodes when I stop using it as a microphone stand and start reading it. <laughs> nice. Nice. Yeah, we'll have to look into that. There's so much more research that you can always do. Mm-hmm. Uh, and for the, for the more uh, smartphone inclined amongst us, there's an app. made. Uh, it's an app made in partnership between UNESCO because uh, the Convict Trail is a World Heritage site. Um, it's one of the 10... Oh, I think there's 10 places in Australia that are earmarked as one collective. I should have learned more about this. One collective group of sites called Australia's Convict History. Um, in fact, you might know because I think the hospital is one of them as well. I wish I did, Jed. I wish I did. Maybe it's the barracks. Barracks, Cockatoo Island. There's a few others. Anyway, the Convict Road is a UNESCO World Heritage Site and also it's in a national park. So UNESCO and New South Wales National Parks have partnered up to make an app about the Convict Road and it includes some background info and walking tours and stuff of the area north of the Hawkesbury River Crossing. Um, I had a very quick play around with it and it's kind of like features a mix of historical tidbits, uh, interviews with contemporary stakeholders and best of all, videos of dramatic reenactments. Oh, excellent. (laughs) That's what you really came there for. And what's the name of the app? Convict Road, Convict Trail, Convict Road, something like that. So I'll be whipping out the app when I'm there in six months' time. Nice. Okay, well, that marks the end, everyone, of our first season of Stories from Sydney, History of the Harbour City. We want to thank you all for listening and hopefully learning a thing or two. We certainly have, mostly me. 
We love recording these episodes, but they are fairly laborious to research, record, and produce. And due to some impending life changes, uh, we plan on enjoying a nice little history hiatus before returning for season two of Stories from Sydney this summer. We're also aware that not everything about our podcast has gone smoothly. And so if there's anything about it that irks you, or if you think will be improved, we would genuinely love to hear it. We have a few ideas, but we are both way too deep into this project to see clearly what works and what doesn't. There's nothing quite like the perspective of an objective outsider to crush your spirit. So please, email, call, stop us on the street, and let us know what you loved and what you didn't. If, on the other hand, or in addition to crushing our spirit, you would like to support us or help us along in our journey, uh, the thing that you could do that would help us the most would be to subscribe to this podcast. And then, if you want to go even further, uh, give us a rating on whichever platform that you use. And then, if you really want to just put a cherry on top, uh, write a review for the podcast on the platform that you use, because all of this uh, activity really helps us in the search algorithms and means that more people will be able to find the podcast. And we're really, really pleasantly surprised how many people have been listening to this podcast. And the more people listen, the more incentive we have to keep making it. So, thanks very much for listening, everyone. And we'll see you in summer for our next story from Sydney. (laughs) 